All right, it's such a privilege to be a pastor and to be able to preach God's word. I'm thankful that we serve a risen Savior and that he is present with us to speak to us through his word. That's really uh, my only hope, even as I'm with you to uh, share a message today. But if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 11, I want us to talk about prayer. That's our subject prayer. And if you remember, we began last week talking about prayer. We looked at verse 1, Luke 11, uh, verse 1, and I was trying to give you some context for this passage. It was a, a call to prayer, reasons uh, that Luke thinks you need to learn about prayer. And today we're going to begin looking at Luke 11, verses 2 through 4, specifically uh, begin looking at a model for prayer. So last week was a a call to prayer, and this week is a, a model for prayer. I want us to get an idea how to pray, some principles uh, that can help us know what we need to be doing as we pray. And actually, we're only going to be able to look at verse 2, and even just one word in verse 2 today. So this is uh, just a beginning. We're going to be taking this a little more slowly. Uh, we're not going to get very far. It's going to take us a, a few weeks. For one thing, just because it's so neglected, prayer. In, in our own lives, many times, prayer is, is not on the top of many people's priority lists. And also, sometimes even in our churches, if you look at things that churches usually do, not just say, but do, actually do, prayer is often sort of over there on the side as something that we do if we have enough time. And, and that's a problem because it's just so important prayer. In prayer, we're talking to God. We get the privilege of actually speaking to the creator of the universe. It's important for us to be a church that prays because of who we're talking to and because of all that God does through prayer. God uses prayer to do things in the world and to do things in us as well. It's like God has stuffed all sorts of spiritual blessings into prayer. Prayer is a command from God, but it's also a demonstration of the grace of God. God shows his kindness to us by calling on us to pray. It's hard to think of many things that are more important for us to do than pray. And if we think about Luke, what were the disciples' priorities to be in Luke, the word of God and prayer? What were the leaders' priorities to be in Acts, the word of God and prayer? We need, as a church, as individuals, to learn to pray. We want to learn how to pray. And as we look down at this passage, we're taking some time here, really, because this, Luke 11, is one of the most important passages in the Bible on prayer. There are a lot of passages in the Bible on prayer, but this is one of the most important. This is Jesus on prayer. I always think, who would you want to teach you how to pray? You would want God to teach you because you're speaking to him, but you would also want a man to show you, and not just any man, but the perfect man, and in Jesus, we get both. We get all that. This is Jesus on prayer. And you remember how this got started, right? The context. Luke tells us, verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples came up and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
which in and of itself is a little surprising, actually, as you're reading that. Not that Jesus was praying, of course, but that the disciples came up and asked him for help because they weren't really known for thinking that they needed help, the disciples. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospels where we find them asking Jesus to teach them anything. And of course, it might just be that they asked Jesus to teach them to pray because this is something they knew that rabbis did. That's possible. And you see even here how they say, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so, of course, they might be asking because they knew that's what rabbis did. But also, certainly I'm sure that they had to be asking because they had actually seen Jesus pray. And even Luke seems to highlight that. If you look down, now Jesus was praying. And when he finished, one of his disciples said, almost like after listening to Jesus, he was shaking his head asking, how can we learn to pray like this? Lord, teach us to pray. And if you look at verse 2, Jesus responds. We see verses 2 through 4. Jesus responds, which means this is actually a good question from the disciples. Because Jesus responds not by rebuking them or even with some sort of cryptic answer like he sometimes did. He responds instead, if you look at verse 2, he says, When you pray, say, Father. So Jesus is going to teach them to pray. But if you go on and read the rest of the prayer that comes after that, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You'll see that Jesus is teaching them to pray by saying something very similar to something he already said back in Matthew. This is almost the same sermon. Not quite, but almost the same. And Matthew's version of this is actually the more famous one. In fact, I heard someone say the version in Matthew may be the set of words most spoken in the history of the human race. It's got to be the most famous prayer in the world. And it's a little more famous than the one in Luke. And it's actually in a different place altogether than Luke's as well. In Matthew, Jesus teaches the disciples the Lord's Prayer, not after he was praying, but actually while he was preaching, and specifically while he was preaching a sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at the prayers, you'll see they have some pretty significant differences as well. Like, for example, Luke's is shorter. Here in Luke, Jesus doesn't say, our Father who is in heaven. He just says, Father. And he doesn't say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And actually, he doesn't say, deliver us from the evil one either. And of course, some people are bothered when they see those differences. But it's not that complicated, really, especially if you've been a teacher, you know a lot of times people aren't really listening, and so you have to say the same thing twice, especially important things, which is what Jesus is doing here. And the reason some of the words are different is because Jesus wasn't giving them a specific formula to pray. Jesus is giving them a model for prayer. And you can just highlight the word model because this is where some people have actually gotten the Lord's Prayer wrong throughout history because as Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, sometimes people will think he's almost giving them a form that they have to say. Like, here's how you pray. You have to say these exact words, which would be a wrong way to think about the Lord's Prayer. Because even Jesus 
didn't just say this when he prayed. And we don't find an example of anyone else, anywhere else in the Bible, just saying this when they prayed. And that's not because they were disobeying Jesus, but instead because they knew Jesus was giving them principles here to use as they pray. Giving us principles. This is a model for prayer. Kind of like, I guess, if you've never preached before and someone says, let me show you how to preach. And they give you a sermon to listen to. And they give you that sermon not so much that you will preach that exact sermon every time you preach, but instead in order to show you what a biblical sermon looks like. And so if you wanted to learn to preach, you wouldn't just memorize that sermon. You would go back to the sermon and study and say, what makes this a good sermon exactly? And that's what we need to do with the Lord's Prayer as well. We need to go back to this prayer and kind of take it apart bit by bit and look at each element and ask, what does it teach us about how we should approach God in prayer? And it takes a little work to do that because every phrase in this prayer is like a hyperlink to so many other passages in the Bible. In fact, it's almost like Jesus was saying, go read the Bible, learn the whole Bible, and come back and use that as you pray. This prayer is absolutely loaded. And it's loaded with so many important themes from the rest of the Bible that it's even a little hard to access the prayer unless you know a lot about the Bible. And yet, while it takes a little work to unpack the Lord's Prayer, it's worth it because this is God stooping down through Jesus to explain some of the key biblical truths that he wants you to understand as you approach him in prayer. That's a, that's a, a privilege. And so I want to show you the next couple weeks some of the key biblical truths that God wants you to understand as you approach him in prayer. I remember reading John Calvin a number of years ago in his Calvin's Institutes. He has a little section, Rules for Prayer, and it's super helpful. But these are almost like Jesus's rules for prayer. And each sermon is going to be a one-point sermon, basically. If you like to take notes, you're going to have to put them together to get all the points. But the very first rule that Jesus gives us, point number one, is that you need to begin prayer by making sure that you're really believing and enjoying the gospel. Right at the start of prayer is the word believe. That's what I want to cement in your minds. That Christian prayer starts with the gospel. The gospel teaches our hearts to pray. And prayer is an exercise of faith in the gospel. And I get that from the way Jesus tells us to address God. The very first word in this prayer is how we are to address God. It's not a petition. It's not a request. It's just a simple statement about how we should think of God. And specifically by God here, as we talk about prayer, we're talking about the first member of the Trinity because that's who Jesus tells us we're praying to. Father. And so even though Jesus is God and the Spirit is God, we don't call Jesus Father in the same way. He is the founder of our salvation and he's fatherly towards us, Jesus, but he's not God the Father. He's God the Son. And we don't call the Spirit Father either, actually, because we pray to one God 
who exists in three persons. And Jesus tells us we're supposed to speak to the first member of the Trinity as we pray and call him Father. And I know some people get real specific when they hear that and think, does that mean I shouldn't pray directly to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit? And I don't think that's the point because Jesus is our friend and even the last verse in the Bible is kind of a prayer to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He's a a person and we have a relationship with him as well. And so I don't think Jesus is saying we can't ever address the Spirit or the Son. That would be getting too much from this. But instead, that the normal pattern in prayer should be to speak to the first member of the Trinity and call him Father. That's the really big thing here. In Matthew, Jesus adds the word are. We call him our Father. And this is a statement of personal relationship between us and God as Christians that's unique to us as Christians. Which I know maybe doesn't stand out all that much to us the way it should because we've kind of gotten so used to it. Probably it seems common. Though it wasn't very common in Jesus' day for a Jewish person to speak of God as their personal father. So they might have spoken of him as the father of the nation, but not to come to God individually and say, you are my father. I am your child. That wasn't a normal way of talking, and yet it is more common in our day to the point where we take it for granted even. And so I want you to stop and enjoy this. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. Think about who God is which is something I do often as I begin to pray. I think about who God is, who I am, and how all this happens. So who am I talking to? I'm talking to God, and I'm calling God my Father. And when I think about who God is, that is a really shocking thing for me to be able to say because he is, first of all, fundamentally different than us, God. God is the creator of all things, which is one of the reasons we're praying to him in the first place. And that means he's not just another creature like me. He's the creator, and that makes him unique. In fact, you you could say, really, it's like there are only two kinds of things in the world, the creator and the created. And they're in totally separate categories, and there is an unending distance between them. And that's why the Bible says there's no one you can compare to God And that's why it says his thoughts are above our thoughts. And that's why us calling him father is kind of shocking. Because there are all kinds of other names you can better understand calling him in prayer. Like king, maybe. That makes sense. God, king, you are my king. Or awesome one. Or or judge. Or even almighty because he's so obviously all of those things. And yet out of all the different terms that Jesus could have chosen in Luke 11 for us to use to address God, Jesus is telling us to call this God Father. And again in Matthew 6, our Father. In other words, this is deeper than just acknowledging that he's a certain kind of God. We're not merely saying you are fatherly. We're not just making a statement about God's character here. Instead, we are claiming a certain kind of relationship with this God, and we're claiming that this kind of God has a certain kind of relationship with us. He is our Father. We are His children. And realizing we have that kind of relationship is shocking, first of all, because of who He is, and also 
because of who we are, which I think is the real issue here, because it's not just that as creatures we're different than God. It's bigger than that. It's that he is holy and we are not. And so even if we somehow opened up the scriptures and we learn that there is this God out there who is loving and he's good and a father, even that wouldn't help us that much by itself because we've totally abandoned that God. And we've totally rebelled against that relationship a long time ago and become God's enemies. And yet when we call God our father, we're saying we're no longer at war with God. But now we have a relationship with God that is characterized by affection, that is characterized by concern, love, delight, intimacy, confidence. See what manner of love. Look, John says in 1 John, see what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Be shocked by this, that we should be called the children of God. God's family. I mean, even in the Gospel of Luke, if you think of where Luke 11 verse 2 is located, it comes right after Luke 10 where Jesus is praying. And if you look back up at Verse 21 of chapter 10, it says, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Father, King of all, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And I think every time that Jesus prays in the Gospel of Luke, he calls God his Father. And that's because, look at this, verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so when Jesus calls God Father, he's obviously claiming to have what? A unique kind of relationship with God. And yet just a chapter later, as he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, I want you to call God what I call him. When you pray, say Father, which means at the very least you're claiming this special relationship with God, which is not something you would naturally have on your own because the Bible tells us we're born enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, not everyone can call God Father in the same way. And so not any one of us deserves to call God Father from birth the way Jesus is wanting us to call God Father because he wasn't our father like that. You remember how Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And some of you could probably quote this with me, right? In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And as children of wrath, we definitely couldn't call God our father. I mean, we could say it. I'm sure he's fatherly. He's the one who created us. And so there's a sense in which he's like a father. But he wasn't our father the way Jesus is talking about. We didn't have a right to claim that, which is part of what makes becoming a Christian so awesome. And it's part of what makes the gospel such good news because it tells us that God didn't leave us in that condition. And I know I'm not telling you anything new, but I want you to see the way Jesus encourages you to use prayer as an opportunity to exercise faith in the gospel. In prayer, I'm calling God Father. And that's shocking because of who God is. 
and even more because of who I am. And how did that happen? John tells us how it happened. John 1.12, he writes, But to all who did receive Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, having received Jesus, Jesus gave us the right to call God Father. And you know, how did we come to have that right? John says, it wasn't because of your family. It wasn't because of your ability. It wasn't because of what someone else wanted for you. It was a supernatural work of God. God made you his child. This happened at God's initiative. And how did God make you his child? Enjoy this. Prayer is a call to enjoy. Because it keeps getting better and better. John's answer to that question seems to be regeneration. He makes you someone you were not. Paul's answer to that question, though, is adoption. And listen, this one word, father, can take you so far. That's kind of the point. It's not just a throwaway term. It's like a hyperlink to all these different great biblical truths. And one of the key truths that helps us understand how we came to have this relationship with God as father is the idea the Bible teaches us about being adopted. And this is Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, Blessed be, do you know this verse? We're trying to memorize this as a family, but it's been maybe four months that we've been working on it, so it's slow. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can get that, right? We can understand that God is the Father of Jesus because Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. And so if we look back before the beginning of the world, we see God the Father with this eternal, loving, mind-blowing relationship with the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, where they're enjoying one another forever as Father and Son, and it's beautiful. And we would all agree, Jesus is the only one naturally with the right to call God Father. And yet what's happened in saving us is that God has united us to Jesus. And that's what makes this such a big deal. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul's saying in saving us, God placed us in Christ. And that means what belongs to Jesus now belongs to us. We have every spiritual blessing because we're in him. We have this and we're in this amazing position and yet how can we be sure God has really made this happen Paul tells us one way we can be sure he made this happen is because of what it means to be saved we're adopted verse 4 verse 5 Ephesians 1 in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ so being saved means God transferred us out of our former family that we belong to into a new one. We were part of the family of Satan and God's taken us out of that family and put us in another one. And this new family that we've entered into as believers is God's own family, which of course is like awe-inspiring. And for Paul, something that is a reason to bless and praise God eternally because this is not something God had to do 
but chose to do. He predestined us for adoption. This was a deliberate choice to bring us into his family. And it was a choice that he made from before the beginning of the world. He had this loving relationship with his own son. And he wanted to bring you into that relationship so that you could enjoy it. Which we know came at a cost to make this happen. God had to pay a price. He adopted us as his sons through Jesus Christ. And yet it wasn't something that anyone forced God to do. He wanted to adopt us. Paul says he adopted us according to the purpose of his will, to the plan of his will, to the pleasure of his will, really. And I hope you're seeing how all this is connected because this is ultimately how we can call God our father. We look up at God and he's great and he's awesome. And we look at ourselves and we are weak and we are sinners. And we look at Jesus and he's saying, you are family with God now. And we look at the gospel and it explains how. Regeneration, union with Christ, adoption. And one reason this is such a big deal is because Ultimately, Paul says, God adopted us to the praise of the glory of his grace, which means he adopted us so that everybody would see and rejoice in how beautiful his undeserved kindness is. And I just think out of all the beings in the universe who should be praising and rejoicing and enjoying the beauty of his undeserved kindness, it should be the ones he adopted. First, we are supposed, you are supposed to enjoy the fact that you are part of God's family. This is supposed to be a big, big deal to us that we're loved, that we're planned, that we're bought, that we're wanted like this. And one place to start enjoying that is in prayer. As you approach God in prayer, this great and awesome God, Jesus wants you to come to him like you would come to the most loving, most gracious, most kind, most perfect father in the entire universe which means you come with joy and confidence and respect and boldness let us draw near the writer of hebrews says talking to us as believers let us draw near to the throne of grace how with confidence because this is part of how we honor God as Christians. We honor God as Christians by coming to him like we really believe that we're not orphans. We're adopted. We're not enemies. We're children. Which means, of course, coming with confidence, you really have a relationship with God. Coming with confidence, that relationship is a loving one. Coming with confidence, he's not distant and removed, but in fact, is your father. And this is sort of just basic biblical teaching. You know the Heidelberg Catechism? If you ever have a chance to go through the Heidelberg Catechism with your kids, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great exercise. It's a great little tool that was used in the past by Christians, questions and answers to help you understand some of the most important truths in Scripture. And one of the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism is this, why do we call God Father? And then... They answer like this. Listen to this answer. Why do we call God Father? That immediately at the beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundations of prayer. The foundations of prayer. What are the foundations of prayer? The basics are childlike reverence, 
and confidence in God. And I'm stressing now the confidence the word Father gives us because this is one of the foundations of prayer. At the bottom, at the heart, and at the core of a believer's relationship with God is this deep love that God has for his children. And that's a big part of what the gospel is revealing to us. I mean, if you think back to when you became a Christian, one reason we start prayer like this is because this is a big part of what the gospel showed us about God. It showed us that God is holy, of course, that he hates sin, that we deserve his wrath, but the gospel doesn't stop there. And if that's all you heard about God, you wouldn't actually be saved. The gospel goes further and tells you that this holy God who created the world is love. That's his nature. And that his love motivated him to send his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that he pours out his great love specifically on those who love Jesus. For the father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. And as faith opens your eyes to all that. All that stuff starts mattering to you more than anything else and you're saved and you realize that God doesn't just love people generally. He loves you personally and he's provided a savior for you and for your sins. Do you see why I love being a preacher? It's it's good news. And when you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes all this truth that you've heard about God's love and makes it real to you deep down. Romans 5.5 says... He pours God's love into our hearts. I love that image, pours. Which which means one of the things that happens when you're saved is that you see that this God who is holy and beautiful and awesome and powerful and totally just somehow is also filled with love for you and actually cares about you. And this is not some sort of weak love that ignores your sin either. It's a perfect righteous love, which is what motivated him to punish his son for the sins you committed. That's what, what's behind Jesus' work on the cross. 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that order there is actually so important because John says what motivated God to send his son to die for our sins is not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Because actually we're tempted to think the opposite. We read that, not that God loved us until we loved him first and sent his son. And yet the gospel makes this shocking claim. Romans 5.8, God, the father's love comes first. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And those are some of the greatest truths in the world. If you're a believer, your heart starts beating no matter how many times times you've heard that your heart just starts beating faster when you start hearing the gospel being repeated over and over again and yet in the middle of the busyness of life those truths can all feel so distant which is part of why God's given us the gift of prayer and as Jesus tells us to call God father it's like he's really calling you back to these gospel basics this is what the gospel reveals and this is what saving faith grabs hold of The love of God through Jesus and his death in the place of sinners. And so in prayer, you're saying, that's mine. What are you doing in prayer? You're connecting your life to the gospel in prayer. I remember someone once said, 
prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And that's because real faith, you remember, is not just believing that there's a God. That's not what saves you. Unbelievers believe that. They actually have to suppress that. And real faith is not just believing that God's angry either. I mean, no one is saved just by believing that they should go to hell. Instead, we're saved by believing God is loving and kind and willing to forgive all our sins because of Christ. And Jesus telling us to begin our prayers addressing God as Father is him saying, it's important you begin prayer by making sure you really still believe that. That you're exercising your faith as you pray. In other words, think about your relationship with God. Don't just rush in. Reflect on the fact that you're coming to your Father. And you have to think about this. You have to reflect on this because sometimes it can be really difficult, honestly, to believe that we have this kind of relationship with God. In fact, a lot of times I think we might say we're adopted, but in reality we don't feel like we're sons of God or daughters of God, children of God at all. We feel like we're orphans. We feel like we're on our own. Like there is no father who loves us. And so instead of peacefully depending on God, we feel like we have to take care of ourselves because that's what orphans do. Orphans have to figure out a way to make it. And that's why sometimes people pray the way hypocrites do because they aren't trusting God, they're calculating, trying to manipulate God. And instead of acknowledging we're children and our need of help, we have to pretend to be strong because that's what orphans do which is why sometimes people pray the way pagans do. It's like a show of strength. Through my words, I can make God do what I want. I'm in charge. And instead of courageously looking out for the need of others, we're worried about ourselves all the time, and we feel like we have to protect ourselves from being taken advantage of. Again, because that's what orphans do. And that's why sometimes people's prayers are so selfish, and they come in prayer unwilling to do what God wants because they're afraid to obey God because it doesn't fit their plan. And this is why instead of enjoying prayer and sensing that God cares about us, sometimes we're frantic and we speak as if no one cares about us and feel all this pity for ourselves like we're on the outside looking in, like we have no family because that's what orphans feel. And that's obviously going to be a problem in our prayer life if we're approaching God as orphans because we're not orphans. We're not orphans. We're adopted and at great cost. And so Jesus is telling us when we come to God in prayer, when you come to God in prayer, you need to start by remembering that, by believing. Exercise your faith by calling God Father. You're recognizing his authority. You're cultivating reverence and you're affirming his affectionate concern for you you're stirring up confidence you're saying I'm in Christ and I am a son and I am loved and I think you I just think you need to hear that you need to hear that right at the beginning of this series on prayer because sometimes it feels like almost almost too much honestly to believe can, can I really believe that God cares about me like he cares about Jesus? I remember back when I was a young believer, and, and not that young really, after seminary. I was in my 20s at least. And, and I often talk about this because it was such a big moment in my life. 
But I used to think it was more holy, almost, to approach God as if he didn't really like me. Maybe I knew I wasn't an orphan, but if I was an adopted son, I certainly was a pretty disappointing one. Because I felt like such a sinner. And I felt like such a sinner because I was a sinner. And so while I knew I could have a relationship with God, I couldn't imagine that he was actually pleased with me. And and so when I came to God in prayer, it was more like I felt he was saying, here you are again, sheesh. All right, all right. Well, tell me what you want real quick. And then if you could just go over that corner behind the angels, get out of my sight, because I don't want to see you again at least for like 10,000 years which actually felt kind of humble to me because I was recognizing my unworthiness. And yet, as I came to understand the significance of union with Christ and my adoption, I came to see that attitude wasn't really humble. It was wicked. And of course, that's not because I wasn't a sinner. I was. And it's not because I finally figured out I was someone so special either. Like, look at you. You deserve to be here. No, I don't deserve to be in God's presence. That's for sure. And yet it was wicked of me to approach God as if he didn't love me because I said I believe the gospel. And it was the gospel that showed me that God does love me. And as a result, I should be confident of that because my confidence wasn't based on what I had done or what I deserved, but instead on what he promised. When when I put my faith in Christ, he united me to Jesus, and that means I don't come to God on my own. I never come to God on my own, and you don't either. If you're a Christian, you always come to God in Jesus. And that's... That's, of course, ultimately why we can call God Father at all, because we're coming in Jesus. And actually calling God Father is like a statement of faith for us, because we don't have any reason looking at the greatness of God to think we could have that kind of relationship with him. And we don't have any reason looking at ourselves to think we could have this kind of relationship with God. This is not something you naturally have just because you're born or something. The only reason we can have this kind of relationship with God is because of the promise, promises God himself made to us in the gospel. And so doubting God loves you when you say you believe the gospel is calling God a liar. And that's not humility. That's a lack of faith. And I know we're so messed up and we sin throughout the week. And so I understand why we show up and we feel so unworthy. And we're tempted to be looking at God with all these anxious and doubtful thoughts. And it even feels right because we're like, but I'm a sinner. And that's true. Grieve over your sin as a believer. Grieve over your sin. But if you're a believer, you're not just a sinner. You're in Jesus. And you're forgiven. And you're loved. And that doesn't mean you can't grieve your father But it does mean he's your father even when you grieve him. And it's because God knows we have such a hard time believing all this that he's given us all these reminders and all these promises. And it's why he's taught us to call him father. And you know, it's actually even part of why he gave us the spirit. I mean, what a father. Romans 8, 15, and 16. You know the passage? Why did God give us the spirit? One reason. 
because God wants to help you know you belong to him. And so he doesn't just tell you and he doesn't just show you. He gives you the spirit so you can know he loves you. Paul explains, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's powerful, right? The word of God is powerful. If all God did was adopt you, that would be big. If he just brought you into his family, that would be huge. But he actually goes further. And he does something no human father can do when he adopts a child. We would wish we could do this as human fathers. But God does something we can't even do as human fathers. He gives us the spirit of adoption as sons. In other words, he does a supernatural work so we can really know we're part of his family. It's the spirit who enables us to cry, Abba, Father. It's the spirit who bears witness in our spirit. This is real. This is not pretend. We are children of God. And one reason he has to do that is because he knows how difficult it is for us to believe as we look at ourselves, these sinful pieces of dust. It's so difficult we sometimes feel we're not even worthy of calling God creator, let alone coming into his presence and talking to him like we're family. And we're tempted to approach him as a result with fear and with shame and with hesitation and with doubt. And God doesn't want his children to come to him like that because he's adopted us and he's given us the spirit of adoption and he commands us to come into his presence with confidence. So it's really obvious he wants us to call him father and view him as a loving father. In fact, some would say this is one of your main priorities as a Christian to enjoy the Father's love for you. And it's a big deal when you're not. In fact, John Owen once said, and if you know John Owen, he's one of those old Puritans that's pretty hard to read because he basically thought in Latin, but it's definitely worth reading if you can do it. John Owen once said, listen to this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the heart of the Father as a Christian the greatest unkindness you can do him. So think about that. Because that's not in Latin. That's pretty easy. The greatest unkindness you can do God as a Christian is what? What did John Owen say? This old stuffy Puritan. Is not to believe that he loves you. Which is a big thing to say. The greatest unkindness you can do God as a believer is not to believe he loves you. Or to say it another way, there's nothing that pleases God more if you're a Christian, then you looking at him and knowing deep down that he is for you, not because you're so good and not because you're so important, but because you're in Jesus and in Jesus, you're his child, which again is why Jesus wants us to begin praying by calling God Father. That's really first when it comes to prayer. That's like a a first principle. How do we pray? First rule for, for prayer from Jesus. Pray believing. Believing what? Believing the gospel. Believing union with Christ. Believing adoption. And one reason why I'm taking such a long time on just this word father is because there are going to be lots of times when you start praying and you're not gripped by that fact. You're not overwhelmed by the fact that you're speaking to your father. And so you're going to have to work a little in prayer at enjoying this by remembering who God is and remembering who you are, and by going back to the promises you find in the gospel and making sure you're believing what you say 
you believe. And sometimes it's like you have to open up your Bible as you pray or go back to verses you've memorized and say, this is what God says. And this is true. And this is mine. This promise belongs to me. God, you say believers are united to Jesus. That means I'm connected to Jesus. And God, you say believers are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That means I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that means, God, I don't come to you on my own. I come in Jesus' name. And what are we doing as we do that? We're exercising our faith. Because faith goes back to the promises of God that we find in the Bible. And faith says, in spite of this trial that I'm facing right now, in spite of how tough things in my life seem right now, this promise belongs to me. It is mine because of Jesus, and I love God through Jesus, and God loves me because of Jesus, and I'm going to talk to God like I believe it, because one of the ways I honor him is by trusting that his promises are true, and one way I prove that is by making this daring claim, this absolutely amazing, shocking claim, that this God who created the universe, that this all-knowing, all-holy, all-wise, everlasting God, that the one who is blessed the only sovereign the king of kings the lord of lords the one who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or seen is my father is he your father he created you but have you been adopted into his family are you one of his children there's only one way any of us can say that the way Jesus wants us to say that, and that's because of Jesus' work on our behalf. Have you trusted in Jesus' work on, on the cross? Have you been united to Jesus through faith? If not, if you don't know what I mean, let's talk. The gospel is not just the good news of how you can be saved from your sins. It is the good news of how you can have communion with a loving God. And if you do have this union with God, make it your goal this week to honor God by enjoying being his child through prayer. Don't just pray. When you pray, exercise faith in the gospel at the start. Believe. Father. Father. Father, eternal, all-wise, all-knowing, creator of the universe, the one before whom the angels bow. They shout out, holy, 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 you are Lord of heaven and earth. God, we are sinful. We are weak. We're, we're a moment. We are dust. We deserve your condemnation. But God, you are filled with mercy. You are, you are kind. You are compassionate. You have stooped down to provide a salvation for sinners. And what a salvation. You sent your son, your only son, into this world to live a perfect life and die a death he didn't deserve in our place so that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. Yes. So that we might have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Yes. But so that we might be united and adopted into your family yes so that we might be heirs along with christ so that we might have hope because we're not just not just slaves we're not just 
servants, we're also, because of your mercy, because of your love, and because of Jesus, your children. God, help us, help us take this truth. It's, we know it, but Lord, Holy Spirit, teach us to pray, Abba, Father. Teach us to cry out. Teach us to look on you, God, as our kind and loving Father. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.